Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Laroff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we welcome comedy writer Bennett Yellen, who is best known for writing the very popular Jim Carrey, Jeff Daniels comedy Smash, Dumb and Dumber, and its equally successful sequel, Dumb and Dumber 2, and other scripts as well. Welcome, Bennett. Well, thank you very much, Stephen J. Rubin. Are you going to confess that this is not Saturday night? I I am not going to say <laughs> anything regarding that because our audience is probably going to watch this on a Wednesday. And I say, <laughs> I say watch this because we're now video. Oh, I, learned wow. something okay. that, uh, I learned something that you don't watch on a podcast. You listen on the podcast. If yes. you want to watch, you got to find our YouTube channel. And we're still in the process of finding our YouTube channel, but we will be on YouTube. Well, I didn't know this was video because, and if it is, I need to put pants on. That's all I'm saying. Uh, and you need to comb your hair. Okay. Well, my hair, my <laughs> singular. <laughs> so I like to ask this question to all of my guests. It's kind of my little signature. Okay. Were, you, were you a member of a movie going family when you grew up? Um. Yeah. Well, well we watched if 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 we didn't all go to the theater, I went all the time. I mean, I was dropped off. I went all the time. I went with my sisters. I I actually I saw Bonnie and Clyde. I was if it came out in '67, I was eight years old, and I went to see it with my sisters. Now my parents just I, I can't still can't believe that my parents let me go see that. But yeah, so I was in. The, I went to the movies all the time, and then at home we watched movies. We watched the musicals always, all together. That was a big family thing. Whenever it was, you know, or or the Ten Commandments. You know, I come from a Jewish family, and but the, all the musicals from The Sound of Music to King and I to Gigi to we'd watch them all together. But I was always at the movie theater. Of all my family, I was there constantly. So what was your signature theater? Where, where, where did you patronize the most? There were two, I lived in Westchester, which is here in California. It's, it's right by the airport. Right. And there were two theaters in Westchester. One of them, the marquee is still there, sort of. And that was the Loyola Theater, which had, was a beautiful uh, deco with a, with a gorgeous. And I think the, even the box office is still there, but it's now uh, like an office building. But they kept the actual the shape of the marquee and the other one where i saw um uh, uh bonnie and clyde was the paradise theater and that was up the street a little closer to the airport uh and that was you wouldn't know from the outside it was a movie theater because it was like one it was one story and odd but the paradise had something inside that was so unique i never saw it in any other movie theater in my entire life and they should bring it back except they don't allow you to smoke in the theaters they had what's called a smoking room, well, a, a, a cry room. And the cry room was in the very back of the theater. There was a, a big room with a big glass, big glass, and it was soundproof. So you take your screaming kid into the cry room and you'd watch the movie in this cry room at the back of the theater. Haven't seen it anywhere else. Of course, people were smoking there too. But uh, oh, that's isn't so that a great cool. idea? Don't you want that to? It is a great idea because room? how many times are you? Well, it's happened a few times, but 
Now we have new issues. Now people like to light up their phones. Exactly. She caught the, the texting room. Are they a texting room? It's yeah. people can't be away from their phones. I, I it's just crazy, crazy, crazy. So, yeah. um, did you, uh, when you went to where did you, first of all, where did you go to school? Uh, when you say that, what do you mean? To when did I, where did I go to high school? Uh, university, no, uh, to, to a university. Oh, I went to, here to UCLA as an undergraduate, and then I had been living at home because I was, I was Orthodox Jewish, and I was living at home when I went to UCLA. And I decided what I was going to go get a graduate degree. I was going to get a master's of fine arts in fiction. And my goal was I was going to buy a corduroy jacket with uh, leather patches and a pipe and then go teach writing at some university, probably in the Midwest. So at that point, I said, I want to leave. my. I want to see what the world is like. And I asked uh, at UCLA several of my teachers what they thought would be a good program for me. And the one that kept, kept met, being mentioned uh, was not the Iowa writing program, which back then was very popular. But they said, I, I got UMass in Amherst, Massachusetts. They all said that was a really great writing program. And I thought, Massachusetts, wow, Emily Dickinson. I, I was like, I like this idea. So, And that's where I ended up going was to UMass Amherst. Yeah. And met my writing partner, Peter Farrelly, the very first day of the first class of school of graduate school uh instantly became friends on that day east coast where they have weather and it was and it was uh, they have seasons more than weather they have seasons and this was the berkshires this was western massachusetts and so i i, I came to understand what spring was what fall was what winter was yeah it was wonderful but, but did you get your corduroy with the patches i never did i didn't because just as I was graduating, I suddenly had a career suddenly manifested itself, and it was not in the Midwest, and it didn't require, and I could, it didn't require corduroy or, or pipes or anything. So uh, you, you yeah. said you met Farrelly. Obviously, we know him as one of the Farrelly brothers. Was his other, was his brother there as well? No, Bob was not there. He was uh, he was in a program. He had, oh yeah, he just. Uh, I can't remember the university, but he was going to another university. He was getting a, a program in business, uh, is getting a, a, a degree in business. Yeah. Because uh, now I remember I, I, I met him. He he graduated and there was a big graduation party at the house in Cumberland, Rhode Island. And that's when I met Bob for the first time because Bob didn't join us. Peter and I wrote together for several years. We, we moved back to Los Angeles together. And, uh, and we wrote together for several years before Bob actually joined us as part of the team. The team. Uh, and yeah. tell, tell me a little bit about writing initially with Peter. Uh, who came up with the ideas or was it shared or how did that work? Oh, it was it was always shared. And what happened was once we realized that we had a similar sense of humor. And again, this happened in the first day, uh, in the first class of the first day, there was the teacher said something unintentionally funny. And Peter and I were sitting across from each other and we both started laughing at this unintentional pun. And uh, and after class, we met in the hallway and we went, that was funny. I had a meet, I'm Bennett. Now we're friends. Uh, and, and over the course of the first semester, second semester, we realized that we should write a movie together. Now, Peter was from Cumberland, Rhode Island. He had no connection to the business whatsoever. His dad was a doctor. His mom was a nurse, uh, was his nurse, in fact. And I hadn't, I didn't have any connection, even though I was born and raised here in Los Angeles. My parents didn't have any, nothing. We 
we did live in Beverly Hills, but that was a coincidence. I mean, like I didn't have any connections from being in Beverly Hills. So, but we said, let's write the script. Let's write a funny, we're both funny. So we wrote a script. It was called Dust to Dust. And it was about, at that time, Bill Murray and John Candy were very big. You know, Murray was big from Saturday Night Live and Candy was big from SCTV. And so we wrote it thinking of them in our heads, you know, uh, and it was about two idiots who get a job at a funeral home, a shady funeral home that's actually uh, um, smuggling drugs and things like that instead in the coffins. And um, and we finished it and Pete was on. So now it's uh, it's coming up on winter break or, or the end. We're, we're about to graduate. It's it's December of 1984, 85, 84. OK. And um, and Pete was on a date in uh, in New York. And uh, and the girl on the date told him that Eddie Murphy had moved in next door to her parents in Alpine, New Jersey. And Pete said, do you ever see him? And she said, yeah, I saw him like getting his mail. So he gave her dust to dust. He said, do you ever <laughs> see him? Again, you know, this could never happen today. This could happen. You'd, be, you'd be arrested. <laughs> you'd be, you couldn't even get near Eddie Murphy before you'd be taken down. And so, uh, she called about a week later and she said, yeah, I, I saw him. I ran across the street and I handed it to him. Okay. Meanwhile, I was back here in Los Angeles for the holidays. And my sister uh, loves to go. To, she loves Israeli dancing, folk dancing. And she knew David Zucker from dancing. Uh, and so I said, my sister's name is Freda. And we have a character named Freda Felcher in both in the Dumb and Dumber movies named after my sister Freda. And I said, Freda, do you think David would read our script? And she said, I'll ask him. And he said, yes. And I gave him her dumb and dumb, uh, dust to dust to give to David Zucker. And now we're going to flash forward to several months into 1985. We're, we're, we're now, our program is ending. We're going to move back to Los Angeles. And my dad sends me, I, I, I'm literally, everything's empty in my apartment in Amherst. I'm leaving in a few days. And I get a, a a piece of mail from my dad and it's a it's an los angeles times article that he clipped and he wrote on the top of it is this your script i'm going to show you the, the front of the article so you can see it says the eddie murphy script derby uh winner take all and, and this article was all about because eddie murphy was hot number one box office it was all about how eddie murphy all everyone trying to pitch him scripts and ideas and it says on a recent i'm going to check they screwed up the uh, the gender, but I'm going to read it and I'm going to correct the gender. On a recent Sunday morning, Eddie Murphy glanced out the living room of his Alpine, New Jersey home and noticed a neighbor standing in the front yard. Under her arm, she carried a script, a sight that made Murphy take a deep breath as he opened the front door. After chatting briefly, Murphy dutifully tucked dust to dust under his arm. Later that night on a flight to Houston for a concert, Murphy started to read. He liked what he read. It made him laugh. Now Murphy wants to option the story and the neighbor's on the verge of selling her first script to Hollywood. This is what happened. <laughs> Paramount, he came back uh, to Los Angeles and he told Paramount, Paramount was looking for Peter Farrelly and Bennett Yellen and all the, all, all the agencies. There's nobody. They planted that in the hope that whoever wrote Dust to Dust would call in. And we did. We called Paramount. We said, hey, we're, uh, this is us. And, uh, and in the meantime, my sister Freda called me and says, Bennett, 
David Zucker wants to talk to you. And I called him and he said, yeah, my, my brother and, and our partner, we read it. We want you to write for us. So we came to town. We moved back to Los Angeles together uh, with a deal to write. I mean, we had no agents, nothing. Creative artists at the biggest agency at that time uh, swooped in. And Richard Lovett, who was a junior agent at, at that time, became our agent. Who is now the head of creative artists. And uh, we had a deal to write for and the, the, the Zucker brothers were were hugely successful off of airplane. They, right, they just, of course. It just when we moved back, they just released Top Secret, their second movie. But we had deals with them, so it was crazy. Not that could not happen at all now, and it happened then. And because we had this ridiculous script that everybody laughed at, and and did did it ever get made with that? It never no. got. It, no. it did not get made. But here, but to give because you well know that you scripts are like. Uh, you're in the Andes and uh, you will cannibalize. You'll eat anything at that point. <laughs> you can always cannibalize from your script. And I went to see uh, Green Book, which Peter Farrelly wrote and directed. Sure. And in the wonderful. opening scene, he, there's a joke from dust to dust in the <laughs> opening scene. I No one in the theater was like, I was like, I, I just, I, I just exploded into laughter. That he took it oh, and used so it in Green Book. Yeah. So, so nothing, it's interesting that Zucker, I, I often got the impression that the Zucker brothers wrote their own stuff or did they bring in writers? They wrote their own stuff, but at a certain point, like, like once they started, after they did, um, after they did Airplane and uh, Top, Secret. Top Secret, the next thing they did was. Um, Ruthless People, which was written by Dale Dale Lawner. So they were willing to, they were they were kind of moving on. And, and they, what we wrote, we wrote, a, a we worked on a TV special for them, which a, a pilot that's, that they, they made the pilot and they aired it, but it, it didn't sell. And then we also did a little work on uh, Ruthless People. And then we wrote an original for uh, when they, they had a deal at Disney, a big deal at Disney. So we wrote, and that never got made either. But uh, yeah, it's, it's it's so frustrating because um, as writers generally, we have no control over whether anything ever gets made. Oh, none, none. You yeah. literally, it, it's it's like having it's like being a professional birther. You give birth to something, and then you hand it off <laughs> and take it away. And you're like, well, see you later. Maybe that, you know. so, now, so. I, I'm so excited to have you on the show because I really wanted to talk about the state of comedy today. Oh, yeah. And I know we're trying to stay happy and, and, and having <laughs> a, have a good time with this conversation, but nothing seems more depressing than starting to talk about how in a certain way, and this is more in features than in television, but television has its own problems. But in features, the business seems to have turned away from comedy i we yeah. still get a few but billy rebeck my writing partner and i used to open the la times when the la times actually had a calendar section that actually worked yeah um, the, on the fridays they would announce all the movies opening and invariably 25 movies would be opening on friday there'd be one comedy yes and this this seems to have gotten even worse over the years and i've heard all of the room uh, all of the reasons some people say co american comedy doesn't work overseas but i'm curious as a, as a person who's steeped in feature comedy, what do you think about the state of comedy? Well, I I, it, it, I have several feelings about it. One is one is that right now I think I think in any business 
whatever is going to make the most money is is what they're going to focus on making. And comedies have just because and I can't I can't track how they ended up being pushed to the side, but I can say that the growth of comic book movies and and expensive expensive special effects movies which have become and basically movies that are essentially video game ish and comic book ish and you know when we're talking marvel universe and and, and dc universe all that became the the big that was the market that's the market that suddenly changed and and, and they were going for that and so and so everything else fell apart, fell fell out small everything and moved to independent movies and 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 that's kind of where comedy has had to go there are very few uh large studio comedies that even get made and even when we made dumb and dumber 2 that cost like 42 million dollars ridiculously i mean dumb and dumber cost 17 million dollars in 1994 uh, you know, which is why it was so successful because it didn't cost very much to make seven million of that was Jim Carrey, uh, and worth every penny, believe me. But I think that um, that, that the studios just say we have to keep. Here's we have now. This is the market. It's either kid. It, I mean, they'd love a four quadrant to have. They love kids. They love adults. They love grandparents. You know, but not a lot of people are doing that. Except you know. The animated movies are geared toward that, and 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 almost all you know, Pixar movies are geared toward that. But most of the time, it's it's the Marvel universe, which you can see is so. In it's not just feature films; it's now it's television, it's everything. And and it's just just comedies have had to go somewhere else to get made. Either they're streaming or whatever, and it's 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 unfortunate. Also, sadly, there's such a sensitivity to to what what you can do and and the jokes you can make that we've gone backwards. I don't think you can make Dumb and Dumber today without changing jokes in it. You, you couldn't get away with it. You, you just couldn't. And I'm not sure even there are things in, in Airplane, which is another, a, a, a revered comedy that and, and a parody that you couldn't do today. You'd have to take out. You'd have to change. Uh, oh, sure, sure. It's funny. There is a there is a raunchiness to some comedies that get made. A studio executive once told me that the only way we can get these movies made is if they're noisy. And they say noisy with being outrageous and often translates into super raunchy. I guess a perfect example is a movie like The Hangover. Obviously. Yes. Yeah, right. And, and uh, I, I find that just uh, just cheap, cheap laughs, you know, going for the, the lowest common denominator. I think that. Growing up on Woody Allen and Albert Brooks and, you know, yeah. in the classic screwball comedies of the 40s, you know, where language was so important. And, yes. you know, now you don't see a lot of that, et cetera, et cetera. So, so obviously, Dumb and Dumber, it was a huge, huge hit for you. Walk me through how that project came about, because I, I refreshed my memory. I watched it again last night. and. <laughs> I, I just laughed my ass off. And I'd like to know um, where that whole inspiration started from. Well, it was a rewrite of a Woody Allen script. No. <laughs> 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 All right. So here's what happened. Uh, so at this point, when Peter and Bobby and I started, we started to write together as a trio uh, on a project that we did for Universal, which was a sequel to the, the movie Dragnet. Uh, which was pretty successful with Tom Hanks and uh, and Dan Aykroyd, and they and Universal wanted to do a sequel to it, and so um, 
we we got that job and at that point we brought bobby in as a, as a third writer with us so now so dragnet was the first script we all wrote together and what happened apparently john hughes had a deal at universal at this time and somehow he got the script of dragnet and he read it and he loved it it was really it really was one of our best scripts it was very funny the movie obviously didn't get made but we nailed it you know uh we were we really nailed it and it just occurred to me now that we also adapted uh, the Beverly Hillbillies at Warner Brothers. That one didn't get made either, but we also nailed it because these were both of those shows were things that were in our blood. We knew them so well, so we we heard those characters so clearly in our heads that writing for them was just like a. Cinch. That was a period that Hollywood was remaking virtually every television series yes. in the 1960s. Yes. Every, that's how I met John Scheinberg because I got the rights. To combat the yes. Dick Morrow yeah, series, right? Yeah, and right. Uh, we were in that sweepstakes too, and uh, we heard about Beverly Hillbillies. We heard about Dragnet. There were like ninety other of those shows, so that yeah. was that was good timing. It was, it was. So John read the script of Dragnet too and thought it was very funny. He called us into his office, and he said, "Guys, I I think you're very funny. I like your writing. Come on in. Come back and pitch a movie to me." So we went away and we said, okay, what do we want to do? What can we what can we bring him? And at this point, I I I was I was a big, I really my uh some like it hot is my favorite comedy. Uh it's just if you have normally I, I won't and I can't give you an answer if you said what's my favorite movie because I I I don't. I could give you maybe 10, but and you know, I, I couldn't narrow it down because anyhow, but some like it hot, I could say is my favorite comedy. I just when I saw that, I was going, I was undergrad at UCLA and I, my eyes opened. I said, you mean every line can connect with something later? And like, it was just, uh, it was eye opening and, and Billy Wilder instantly became my favorite director. And, and I've seen it countless times uh, and I love it. And something else I always loved was I love the road to movies. And I love the dynamic of, of Bob and Bing which is very similar to the dynamic of uh, of Jerry and Joe in Some Like It Hot. It's it's they're always vying they're always vying for the same girl and they're always backstabbing each other quietly together. <laughs> so uh, once we watched those, we said this should be a, it, it should be a road movie and the, the two characters should that's what should happen in it and that's it's that's how it started to set up in our minds. We and we took these we just created these characters and created a, a trip for them and 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 we came back and we pitched him dumb and dumber and he loved it and he said i love this go and write it and uh if i like it i'll let you direct it was what he told us you know I, what we wouldn't have even thought of directing it we just we'll be happy to type the end you know uh and you and said so, you were pitching this to john hughes to john hughes yes it's so funny because about about the same time you were pitching to John Hughes, yes. I was working for John Hughes. I oh, wow. Was, I was his unit publicist on Pretty in Pink. Was this at Universal? This like, was at Paramount. Okay, Paramount. Okay. Uh, so he was, I guess he, he was in Paramount and then he must, I think he went very short, like for a year to Universal. And this was during a brief time. Uh, and here's what happened. We, we handed in the script and his deal ended and then he moved to uh, Fox, 20th Century Fox. And as you well know, when a, when a production deal ends, all the scripts go into an icy crevasse. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 
that's the end of that. And no student, no other studio will produce, you know, wants to produce a movie that the director developed at another studio, you know, like, like do something new and fresh for us. So that's what happened. And after a year or two, we went back to him because we always loved the script of Dumb and Dumber. We went back to him and said, John, can we take this around and see if we can set it up somewhere? He said, yes, I'll give you permission, but you can't use my name to set it up. You know, I'm not going to be the producer on it. And if you do, you have to pay me a million dollars. So we were like, well, we just saved a million dollars from our budget. And uh, <laughs> there you go. And we saw it. We sent it everywhere, Stephen. We sent it everywhere three times. We got rejected, not just soundly rejected, but enthusi enthusiastically direct rejected. You have to remember, though, back then, a stupid script, a, a stupid comedy was viewed like very, it was looked down upon. You know, like, why would you send us this? This is idiotic. You know? Oh, also, we had attached Pete as the director because John had said we could direct it. We were attaching Pete as the director well as well. So the studios would get the script that had a director who'd never directed before. It, it was not a pretty package, as we like to say, and, and remotely. There was nothing. And they'd read it and they'd say, this is dumb. But, you know, this is before dumb was a genre. So um, everybody passed and we said, you know, we know that it's already been covered at, at, under Dumb and Dumber. Let's rename it. So we renamed it Go West. And we sent it out again, and it was again <laughs> rejected by everybody. Uh, and we said, well, that's not going to stop us. We've got one more title in us. And we came up with a power tool is not a toy, which <laughs> was so bizarre. And it was actually a song by a group called like the New Americans or something. We just said, that's so weird. Wouldn't you want to know what the hell that script is about? Well, apparently nobody did <laughs> because almost everybody rejected it except, except for two producers in Santa Monica who had a small production company called the Motion Picture Corporation of America, Steven Stabler and, and Brad Gavoy. And they didn't mind. They thought it was hilarious. And they and they were making low-budget movies. They didn't mind that Pete was attached. I mean, what did it matter to them? The funny script. So they said, we'll do it. We'll do this movie. And, and it's, you know, in Hollywood, the molecules of possibility float in the air. But suddenly when they start to you know, how planets are formed, they start to swirl and whirl. And then they hear that, oh, there's this script called Dumb and Dumber and Motion Picture Corporation. And suddenly there's gravity to it. And now Pete's a legitimate possibility because he's he's attached to it and everything like that. So that's what happened with Dumb. New Line, Michael DeLuca, who was one of the high up executives at New Line at the time and had just made a movie. They just shot The Mask with Jim Carrey. He said, I, I, I want to hear, I want to see the script that, that that Motion Picture Corporation is making. And he read it. And he said, I think this is great. Jim would like this. So he showed it to Jim and Jim said, I do like it. I would I would love to do this. And so DeLuca and New Line contacted uh, Motion Picture Corporation and said, we would love to co-produce Dumb and Dumber with you. And that's how it all came about. And I remember at that time, because they had paid him like 70, he'd already made, and it was just about to be released, Ace Ventura. Uh, and he had shot The Mask, which would be coming out that summer. Uh, and we said, you should get Jim for his $700,000 price, you know, uh, get it now. And they said, let's wait to see how The Mask opens. Well, Dumb was, well, well Ace was a huge hit. And then The Mask was a bigger hit. And they had, and that's, where they had to pay him $7 million. 
They paid him 10 times as much. So um, your bu- your budget started out very small. Now, before Jim Carrey came to the table, had you thought about who you would want to be in the film? No, not only have we not thought about it, but when he said he was interested, uh, Ace Ventura had just come out. And so I, I, I went to the theater to see Ace Ventura. I think he, at this point he may have even been signed, right? I went to the theater to see Ace Ventura. I stumbled out of there like... Because I thought, because it's such an extreme character, what he's doing in Ace Ventura, he's he's making a face in every scene. He's, he's, he's the, the voice is exaggerated, and I said, I I I can't understand. He's I know I liked him from In Living Color, but I just I was terrified he was going to recreate Ace Ventura. I couldn't see him doing Lloyd Christmas in Dumb and Dumber like Ace Ventura. And the first thing he said when we met, we shook hands. He welcomed me into his condominium in Westwood. He said, I just want to assure you, I am not doing the character in Ace Ventura. And I, <laughs> and I was like, thank you. I, in my mind, I was like, okay, good, fine. I also, uh, I also yeah. read in IMDb that uh, he had had a toothed cap at one point, and he removed his cap to give that little space in his tooth. Yes, he came to the set with it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and then he had it capped again, and then he had it uncapped again for Dumb and Dumber 2. <laughs> so yeah the, the other uh the other player which i'll put up right now uh of course uh was mr jeff daniels now jeff daniels has become one of our great dramatic actors you know someone who just uh is just known for some really cool dramas i i, I recently i saw him for the 19th time in the martian you know he's in gettysburg he's been in all these serious dramas how the hell did he come into this? I, I think there's something it's something to do with Carrie, right? No, it was us. We oh. we loved Jeff Daniels and, and we loved the movie Something Wild. And it's a and and for the first the first half of Something Wild, the Jonathan Demi movie, is just it's like a it's almost a slapstick comedy. I mean, it's play it's played very broad. And we loved Jeff Daniels. We thought his performance in that was hilarious. And so we we like the idea of getting, uh, although you know Jim was so well known from In Living Color, and at this point you know there's some he was very known for being kind of wild, kind of wild, excessive, almost Robin Williamish in terms of how far he'd go. And we were like, you know, if we get Jeff Daniels, who we know is is a is a solid actor, Jeff will pull Jim closer together. You know, and that was our thinking. And no one, the studios, both of they did not want to hire him. They, they so did not want to hire Jeff that they lowballed him in order to get him to say no. But he really, he thought this, he was ready to do this kind of movie. He thought it was, it was so different from what people were expecting from him. Thank goodness. And so he turned down the lowball offer and said yes to everyone's surprise. Uh and and again, they, it's just they they work so well together. They were instant. They became instant friends. They're still very close friends now. I, they I, just I play I, off each other so brilliantly. I read read uh, somewhere that uh, that he considers the toilet scene his Oscar clip. <laughs> it, it it's I, I remember when we had the first assembly of it and we showed it to his manager. Sorry, my nose is running. I'm sorry. We showed it to his manager as it was sitting right next to me. And uh, the bathroom scene was the whole movie was that that cut was two hours and 40 minutes. It was that long. 
But the bathroom scene was twice as long. And and <laughs> the guy turned to me, I'll never forget this, and he was ashen. And he said, you're cutting all that, aren't you? And I said, oh, yeah, it's out. The scene is out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, I, you know, I haven't seen every Jeff Daniels movie, but I don't think Jeff Daniels has ever done a character like this again. I mean, it was... He's... Not this extreme. In fact, and then shortly after, he got hired by Clint Eastwood to do this movie called Blood Work. And because Clint Eastwood, when they met, Clint Eastwood said, the bathroom scene in Dumb and Dumber, that happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that actually happened to a friend of ours. That's why we put it in. So... Um... When you when you got the script to Motion Picture Corp, uh, you say the first did you say the first cut of uh, of the movie was two hours and forty minutes? We're talking rough, like yeah, yeah, rough, rough cut. Oh, yeah. got it. That's one hundred and ten minutes now. Yeah. Oh right, right, right. Now uh, Peter's directing. Yes. Was it? Uh, Bobby was by the way. Bobby was was co-directing it too, but but very much like the Zuckers did. But Bobby didn't get technically get credit, but. Zucker's always had one, two people, two of them on, because it was a threesome, two of them on the monitor and one on the, the actually on the set working with the actors and they, they, they discussed between things. And so Bobby was always, was on the monitor for dumb, but Bobby did co-direct it. I, I, and yeah. how, what, what were you doing on the set every day? Were you acting as another I, set of eyes? I wasn't on that set very, I was not on that set very much uh, because I was, I was going through some, difficult period a difficult period in my life and i sort of was not as present on that set i was there for a little bit of time uh and then fortunately when we got around to the second one i was a much in a much better place in my life and so i, I spent a considerable amount of time not i'm not just on the set but i'm i do a cameo at three i'm in the movie three times because pete kept saying bennett get in the background we need you <laughs> To the point where after the third time he was going to do it again, and the crew said, "Stop it! You cannot keep putting Ben in it. People are going to notice it's him." <laughs> you became the Waldo of. Uh... I was the Waldo, and you can definitely <laughs> you can definitely find me uh, three very distinct places. Uh, well, to me, having kind of grown up on film sets in a way, I mean, to me, it's the strawberry on the shortcake when you get to actually see the movie being made. So that oh must have been a little. Must have been a little frustrating for you to have to go through a bad period at that time. Um, it was, yeah, you know, it, it was that, that was just my life course, and uh, and it's and, and here I am where I am now in an amazing place and 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 so much better. And I don't know whether I could have gotten here without going through that. So I mean, that's kind of the way I look at it. But when when Pete called me and said we're going to make a second one, it really gave me an opportunity to, in a way, make amends. Uh, because I said, well, now I can be as present as possible for this, and I will be, and I made sure that I was there for, for as much of it as I possibly could be and participated as fully as I could, which was very, very satisfying, uh, you know, at, at an emotional and spiritual level. It was very satisfying. Bennett, were Brad and Steve involved in that project as well? They were not involved in it. No, they weren't involved in the, in the, in the sequel. No, at that point, New Line had been, like subsumed by Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers sort of sort of moved moved ahead without Brad and and and, and Steve Stabler uh, involved. Yeah. Right, right. I was working with them when I was at Showtime. I spent ten years at Showtime, and they brought some 
projects over to Showtime. So I, I met them a couple of times. They, they, they were interested. It's funny because I went to elementary school with Brad's uh, brother. Oh, wow. His late brother, Jack. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I know that we have all sorts of mutual connections here. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Tell me, when the first Dumb and Dumber opened, you must have gone to some of the early screenings. What do you remember about the audiences? Here's what I remember about the audiences. Remember, I, 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 I remember, first of all, it was Ace Ventura. That was a hit. Then The Mask was a big hit. And before The Mask was the trailer for Dumb and Dumber. And I would go around to the theaters where The Mask was playing, and I would watch the trailer, and the audience was roaring. And now, I, I no, you know, you cannot guarantee a hit. If every, if you could, then we'd all be making hits and only hits. But I was watching that, and I'd say, like, I think we, we're, like, in pole position here because we're coming out this year. He had three movies. We're coming out. We were coming out in December. I said, we're, I, think, I think this is going to be a hit. And then we would preview it, and the audiences would scream. And I would say, we're going to be a hit. Like, like to, for a first movie that you've had produced, you know, and this is the, really the first feature. I had some television stuff. I had an HBO special produced, but before this, and that that uh, the Zucker Brothers uh, a pilot. But I, I was like, is it possible? Really? This is going to be a hit. I mean, it seems like, like it looked, it looked like green lights flashing, flashing, flashing. And then it was a hit, which was astonishing. I mean, it was just unbelievable. I, I was blown away. It was thrilling. And you know, what, what was extra thrilling about it is that as a kid, my fantasy was I wanted to write movies. And the reason I wanted to make movies, write them, I wanted to write them. Didn't want to direct them, didn't want to act in them. I wanted to write them because I wanted to do something that made people smile, that took them away from their everyday problems. That was, yeah. I remember thinking that as a little kid. And here I was, 1994, December, watching this movie become a hit and going, I, my dream came true. This is crazy. It was It was really quite a, a something lovely to, Something to check off the bucket list. So, yeah, yeah. I didn't even know I had a bucket list, then, but uh, <laughs> it was amazing. And no, so, we, yeah. We've, we've just come out of a huge writer strike. Uh, yeah. You see all these things going. I have to ask you the question. And if you don't want to answer it, it's fine. But when a movie like Dumb and Dumber becomes a big hit, does any of that hitness trickle down to you? Does the hitness, you mean like 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 reputation wise or or I'm talking pure dollars and cents. Were you able to get a piece of that success? Oh, well, well, yes. I mean, and and, and very much also because uh the movie only cost 17 million. It was very like it was very well known that it didn't that it didn't cost much it made 258 million i think that's 1994 dollars for some incredible reason that i can't explain uh dumb and dumber is is in the zeitgeist of of america like like there are movies that are academy award winning movies and you don't even talk about them the next year dumb and dumber has the affection for it has grown and grown and grown and, and and very much like like Rocky Horror Picture Show, it's become a cult film and it's it's referenced all the time. And, and I, like a, a week does not go by, honestly, where some somehow I won't find, hear a reference to it or someone will or see someone, you know, I, not a week, you know, and it stayed and it's coming up on 30 years. 
it's it's kind of mind blowing. And the answer is because it, it didn't cost a lot of money, but it made a lot of money. Um, I still get residuals on it. I still get uh, I still get profit participation every year. You know, any type of thing that that comes about, you know, merchandising and things like that. I, I so the answer is yeah, I do I do get a, a no. A, that's a, good. That's good to hear because you hear the horror stories. You know, people of course you know, yeah, shut out money wise and, and yeah yeah. You hear a movie did four hundred ninety seven million dollars in box office and it still hasn't broken even yet. You know that kind of studio exactly. crap. They, they couldn't futz with the books on on. on they couldn't futz with all the money they they claim they said they made because. Yeah, you know, it, it was. It cost so little that the the uh, the profit was so obvious. Any hesitation amongst Carrie and uh, Daniels to do the sequel? No, they really want it. In fact, Jim initiated the sequel. He was in a hotel. He was on vacation in Hawaii, and he was in a hotel, and he and it was on TV, and he watched it. And the next day, he called Pete and said, "I haven't seen it in years. That maybe I was laughing like crazy. Let's make another one." So Jim was the one who initiated it. Yeah. You know, Jim Carrey, um, like Robin Williams, was a very unique comic, very, very unique physical comic at a time when there weren't that many really great physical comics. I haven't followed his career of late, but I've got I got the impression that he's almost semi retired. Is that true? Well, he he went through a period where he got where he sort of went through this. I'm going to call it the metaphysical period where he was sort of like. He would show up. He just like, you know, the man has everything you could possibly want, and and he just went through this very, where he was looking at life and trying to figure out his life. And he'd show up at premieres, and and they'd say, "Jim Carrey, you're here," and he'd say, "No, I'm not here. I'm just the idea of Jim Carrey." And people were like, "Oh, he's lost his mind," you know. Uh, and this was before <laughs> he did Dumb and Dumber too. Like he came back to earth, but he sort of went through this period where he was looking for himself metaphysically or whatever and i'm like whatever you need to do jim i get it i mean i i get it he was looking for for, for what was real for him you know and, and uh and fame and fortune were not important at that point and and making another movie was not important but he came back to i i, I think i i, I don't want to presume why he came back but uh he came back to earth and uh Fortunately, and he engaged in Dumb and Dumber 2 with great enthusiasm. We all had so much fun making it. It was like a high school reunion, you know, uh, like we got the team back together. And what was interesting was that the first one that we made, none of us knew we were making a hit. None of us knew what what it meant for us career wise. We were just so so it was written in in naivete, you know, before actors were attached. And the second one was the exact opposite of that, because you knew who was going to do it. You knew people were waiting to see it. Were you, were you writing to expectations? You know, you know what I mean? It was a whole different set of rules and reality for us to construct the second one. And we just said from the very beginning, we said, let's not worry about what we think people want this to be. Because that that'll just we'll start writing for rather than let's just go with our gut, go with what we want to see, and and trust our gut. Our gut worked the first time; it'll hopefully work the second time. And that that was our our our, our sort of our north star in putting that together. Now the franchise has gone on, but you did not work on the third one, I believe. 
I did. There was there was a, an intermediate one before Dumb and Dumber Two called uh, Dumb and Dumberer. And what happened was New Line came to us and they said, "This is not too far. Like maybe like five years after Dumb and Dumber, maybe five, maybe more." And they said, "We want it. We, we don't." Although we'd heard that that both of the guys would want, would have done a sequel at that time, New Line wanted to spend to spend less money because they knew that that Jim's price was getting, you know, he was getting $20 million for the cable guy. And, and so they said, we want to do a prequel. We want to do Harry and Lloyd in high school. And we were like, well, we don't, because the whole idea of what Dumb and Dumber, why Dumb and Dumber is so funny is they're adults who are adolescents or frozen adolescents. It's not funny when they're in high school and they're idiots. So we begged out on that. <laughs> um, and I just have a, you know, a, a a card, you know, executive on that because they asked if I wanted it. And I said, yes, Pete and Bobby said, I don't, we, don't, we don't even want that. But I was like, what could it hurt me? So I kept it. But I had, I had zero creative involvement in that one. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But then there's another film after two, right? No, oh. no, there hasn't been. No, oh, there hasn't been. OK. Is no. there any plan to do another one? Um, We keep, you know, Pete and Bobby are at, would absolutely do it. And and we keep hearing we keep here. I keep calling Pete and saying, I've heard buzzing that there's going to, that they're talking about a third. He goes, Oh, really? I haven't heard that. So whether it, it could still manifest, I don't know. But uh, as far as I know, at this date on Saturday night in some mythical world, <laughs> uh, I don't know of any definite plans to do it. That would be mm-hmm. up to Warner Brothers. So Dumb and Dumber When Harry Met Lloyd is the prequel you just talked about. Okay, got it, got it. And then there's uh, the... There was an animated series that right, like in 1995. Right, right. Right off of the movie. Right. Uh, Yeah, and I was was involved with that a bit, but I was going through a very difficult time and it was not the right fit for me to be working on that show. So I, I left it and the show didn't last very long anyhow, but. Uh, now, do you, are you still uh, attached with the Farrelly's or are you pretty much more independent now or do you guys work together I, occasionally? Um, we work together occasionally, not, but, but, and, and they call me in sometimes, you know, uh, I'll, I'll be part of a, um, a round table uh, to punch something up, but I, but I, I, I I've written with, I always have written with a partner. I've never written by myself. And uh, I just didn't want the solitude of it. And and it's not fun for me writing to sit across from somebody in a room who's your friend and be throwing things back and forth. It's like your own writer's room, you know? Uh, and, oh, yeah, and, no, and of course, of course. I, 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 I have to, I have to laugh because um, Billy and I have closed more restaurants in LA that have gone into business <laughs> After we've worked there, worked there yes. for some reason, it's almost like we're their bad luck charm. But my favorite <laughs> is the West Side Pavilion. Before it went out of business, we would work in the food court with 900 screaming kids and nannies. Wow. And it was the best place to write comedy because there's no way I'm going to write comedy in a quiet room. Yeah, it just no. doesn't work. It's, and, it's, it's, yeah. and, I, and I, you I, can't write comedy by yourself. It's impossible. You've got to bounce things off people. I am in huge, huge awe and admiration for great comedy writers who write by themselves, like like Woody Allen. I, I they blow my mind. But again, my favorite my favorite writer and my favorite director is well, my favorite writer is William Goldman, who also wrote by himself. 
But my favorite director is Billy Wilder, who always never wrote a script alone. And, and so right, I, mean, of course. You know, I don't I don't have to feel bad. Billy Wilder always had a writing partner. So I, I've had one writing partner for the last like uh, 17 years, the same partner, which is a long, that's like a marriage. But uh, so I write with him now. But every once in a while, I mean, it hasn't happened in a bit. But are you not talking about Peter? No, not Peter. No, this is another my, my writing partner now, James, who I've, we've been writing for 17 years together. Oh, but okay. uh, but Peter, maybe sometimes they'll call me. Peter Bobby will say, "Do you want to? Will you read this, or do you want to do the the roundtable? Come in and and, and sit like like that." So, and if we were going to do another dumb, we would all write it together. We'd have to. I mean, that that's when when you were writing part. the dumbs, the dumbs, the dumbs. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> dumb you, I. <laughs> when you were writing, uh, who would drive during the script writing phase? Would, uh, are you both sitting on laptops working together or is somebody else driving and you're throwing this, out ideas? This was always this was always the format. I am at the typewriter and they're behind me. All, that's how we always did it. And to, even to the point where what Pete loves to do is when we're writing something and this this developed later it wasn't when we did dumb because when we did dumb we were we were you know apartment bound he likes to take it he likes to drive across the country i sit in the car and in the driver's seat and i've got a pillow and i've got the laptop and that's how we do it but we're driving and i'm i'm, I'm and i have to after like 10 minutes 15 minutes i'd have to stop because the peripheral you know i'm concentrating on the screen and typing and the peripheral of the of the the scenery moving past would make me nauseous so but pete loves to drive across the country because he feels like you're you're really connecting with your creativity if you're not first you're not you're not on your phone you're not distracted you're not on the computer you're not looking you're not googling stuff uh and so that's how pete likes to work you know um, now what about with your partner of the last 17 years how do you guys work completely differently here's how we work we we sit in a room together we, we beat it all out. So we have it all beaten out. And then we break up the, 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 uh, the, the, the beat, the beat sheet. And, and we stay, we sit in the same room, but we're, we're just in our corners writing our scenes. And then we pass them back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back. Oh, interesting. Until we sort of blend them together. Yeah. Now what's, what's going on? Do you have something percolating that you can talk about? Well, we had a script, we had a spec script and we, we were always, We've written in different genres. We've done comedy. We've done, we did a, a, a hard-edged revenge thriller called In the Blood that, that that came out with Gina Carano. We've done a Christmas movie, a Christmas family movie for the WWE. We're all over the place uh, and we love it. I mean, we did uh, the sequel to Joyride 2, where Joyride was like this, this scary, J.J. Uh, Abrams wrote that, the first one. Uh, and so... We like genre. So one of the genres we actually enjoy is like like supernatural. Or, so we've decided to write a supernatural thriller uh, as a spec called Traction. Uh, and we did this a few years ago. And then um, COVID came and everything like that and, and shut everything down. And here was Traction sitting there. Nothing was happening with it. And then during COVID, a producer started to circle it. I don't remember how he got it. But uh, and then once once COVID was over in 2020 this year he came to us and he actually optioned it at the beginning of this year uh and so just on the friday before the strike started he took us out to breakfast he said guys is the strike really happening 
We said, yeah, we, we, the guild says it's happening. And it was happening, you know, it was starting on Tuesday of the following week. And he said, well, I want to buy traction. And we're like, "You do, fantastic. We just have to get this done before the strike starts, you know. So there was a rush to get it done. And we got all the paperwork done. And we sold it before the strike, just before, literally hours before the strike. The irony is, once we sold it, we went on strike and we couldn't work on it. So, <laughs> so it was sold because of the strike. And we were locked out because of the strike. But uh, strike's been over now for a while. And we're we're waiting for a call from him. <laughs> but it's his uh, to do whatever he wants to do with. But uh, he wants to make it. it, it, it I think it, it is definitely on, on going to be made a uh, little low budget. But uh, Do you think you will work with the Farrelly's again? I would love to. I think I, I think I will. You know, they're sort of they're doing their own things themselves now. Pete's been direct, directed a couple movies, now three movies by himself. Bobby is now directed two movies by himself. But I, I we're all very close, very good friends. And I would love to. And if, again, if it was if it's Dumb and Dumber three, well, we haven't I can't we don't, we don't have a title for it yet, but uh, it would definitely be us. There's no question. And I mean, we have we have a, a report. We have a shorthand, a short hand in the way we even think, you know. Yeah. Well, Bennett, this has been great. I mean, it's just so fun. Are you kidding me already? <laughs> How did Saturday night go by like that? <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's when 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 you're having a good time, it just swirls by. Uh, we've been listening to Bennett Yellen talk about his career in comedy and uh, new comedies down the road and horror. And you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm Steve Rubin, your host. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. Please subscribe to our channel. It's free. Uh, we're on all the platforms. Uh, if you have any questions about the show, you can email me directly, Steve at it's actually Steve J. Rubin at gmail.com. There's no N. It's Steve without the Stephen, because somewhere in the universe is a Stephen J. Rubin at gmail.com. I don't know what he's doing, but he's not me. So Ben, this has been great. Thank you so hey. much. And I, you, I, I I I will continue to follow your adventures. They sound like a lot of fun. Please do. Thank you. I appreciate it.